special guests today to step away from Leviticus briefly and to return to um, the message that we all need to hear at least once every few years, and that is the message on the Great Commission. We need to be reminded, and each, each younger generation needs to, we need to be sure that they hear this. And so, so I'm preaching a message that has been uh, preached before by many before me and by my, myself as well. Um, but I think we need to be sure that we are all mindful because the Great Commission, as we call this, uh, particularly this passage that we'll be looking at, Matthew 28, the Great Commission is sometimes misunderstood to be um, something that applies just to certain people that God calls to go away to a mission field. But we need to be reminded that the Great Commission is for the whole church. We all need to be mindful of what this is. And it is part of our as part of our uh, statement here, it is implied in, in our church purpose here to glorify God as a loving fellowship of Christ-like disciple-makers. And we're going to look at what that, what that really means. So I invite you to join me in Matthew 28 today, and we'll be looking particularly at verses 16 through 20 as we revisit the Great Commission. And hopefully whatever is tickling in my throat will not hinder us too much today. I want to look, jump right into it and look, first of all, at the context of the Great Commission. Now, there was something that um, I think it was just uh, lazy, uh, academic laziness or carelessness that I, that I hadn't put the pieces together when I was uh, many years ago when I read and looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I just kind of made this assumption that these were the words of Christ just before his ascension and that this was the last thing he said to the disciples, and up, off he went. And as I uh, studied the passage more carefully, I realized this, that cannot be. It was not actually the timing of that. And there's a reason why that's kind of important. I want to look at that. So first I want to just look at the significant timing of the discourse, which is immediately after the resurrection. And now it just dawns on me. I apologize. I don't think I printed out and created any distribution of a handout for you. I made a handout but you don't have it. Sorry about that. So you, you might have to just sketch this, sketch this down a little bit. Um, so it, it's letter A, I'll tell you. Uh, number one, Roman numeral one, is the context. And we're looking at verses 16 and 17 here in Matthew 28, um, looking at the context. And then capital letter A is the significant timing of the discourse, which is immediately after the resurrection. We see this in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, a mountain in Galilee, that's not where Jesus ascended, is it? He, he was not in Galilee. He was just outside of Jerusalem. So this is what made me take a little bit of a closer look. So here's the context for that. Back in Matthew, just, just look a little further up in your text, Matthew 28, verses 5 through 10, we see that Jesus gave this instruction. He sent this message to his disciples to meet him in Galilee right after his resurrection. It says, the angel said to the women, well, here we have the, the message delivered from the angel first, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. This was the instruction upon Christ's resurrection. He's going to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus met these women on the way and encouraged their hearts as well and said, Take this message to the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Remember, Galilee is way up to the north. Jerusalem is where the crucifixion and the resurrection took place. And so they're all meeting at a different location. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul provides an order of events between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And I think it's helpful for us to have this context clear in our minds. So in this passage, it says, I deliver to you as of first importance, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, but this is what he received. This is the testimony he received from the apostles who were there, who were the eyewitnesses to these events. They said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and in other words, in fulfillment of prophecy, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve which, by the way, that reference there to Cephas and then to the Twelve is why I happen to believe that Peter may have been one of the two uh, people on the road to Emmaus when Jesus uh, cloaked his his identity until the very end of that time. Verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Have there there been sufficient eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, to the fact that he was alive again after being dead? A crowd of 500 people saw him at one time besides all these other individual and small group visits. And he, and he adds this on, which is really significant, most of whom are still alive. So Paul is putting right out there in this public letter, throwing down the gauntlet, if anybody wants to try to challenge the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are 500 people who saw him at once, and most of them are still living. So there are plenty of people around to verify what I'm saying. And if there were critics, if there were people who wanted to destroy the testimony, they would, of course, try to take advantage of the opportunity. But he's saying there there are over 500 people right now who can testify to the fact that they all saw Jesus at the same time. I find that significant. Though some have fallen asleep. In other words, a few have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now note in Luke, Luke in his second volume, if you understand the book of Luke, the book of Acts, are actually all written by the same man, Luke, right? And so it's basically volume one and volume two. It's the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and then the aftermath of, of after Christ returns to heaven. So in his second volume, Luke records the fact that Jesus spent 40 days on earth in that interval between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. So it's during this 40 days that there have been many people who have seen him on many occasions, and these certain events have taken place. This says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke, in chapter 24, verses 43 through 53, records actually his final discourse for the disciples and his ascension, which took place outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. So no, that's another conversation. So the immediacy, the close proximity in time of the declaration that follows in this text shows the significance of Christ's resurrection and its relevance to what he has to say. The fact that this is, what he, this is the first thing he has to say. He wants to meet his disciples. 
He's getting away from this little hotbed of, of all that's been going on in Jerusalem so that he can really have some important time talking to them. So he says, let's meet back up in Galilee. Okay, let's get out of Jerusalem. I'll meet you up there in Galilee. Now, what is the first thing that he's going to say after all this transpired? I mean, remember, these disciples, they were with him. They, they celebrated the, the Seder supper together. They, they had the Passover meal. And then going out to the garden, and then all these traumatic events that followed. Soldiers coming with torches and swords and spears and arresting Jesus, and the disciples are, are afraid, even though Jesus has warned them that these things are going to happen. They just never really registered the reality of what was about to happen. And, and so now they, they run away, and they're afraid, oh no, they're going to hunt us all down, they're going to get us all, and so they, they go into hiding. Apart from, we see the events of Peter and his uh, and his fearful retreat as well by, his, by denying Christ. So these, these are these terrified men who are supposed to be the disciples, the followers, the students of Jesus Christ who have now run into hiding. That's just a few days later. What is Jesus going to say to these men after all that's happened? After they saw him arrested, saw him beaten and crucified and put away in a tomb? And they're fearing for their lives. What is the first thing he needs to say to these guys? Well, the resurrection, the proximity of what of this message, just immediately upon the heels of his resurrection, is significant because the resurrection proved who he is. It completed God's plan for salvation. It fulfilled prophecies uh, from thousands of years. And hundreds of years through the Old Testament period, through the many prophets who spoke to these events. And it earned him, Jesus Christ, top honors above all the created universe. It's significant to note here that if Jesus didn't really come back to life, if the resurrection hadn't happened after dying on this cross, if there's no literal resurrection, and I, and I make a point about this because there are vocal Atheists today who try to make a deal about this, they try to minimize the resurrection and say, what's wrong with you Christians? Why do you keep going on about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's a petty, insignificant thing, and we all know that people don't come back to life after they're truly dead. And, and so they just try to just wave it away and try to minimize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, you can have your religion and you can have your faith, but come on, let's, let's, let's not kid ourselves about this resurrection business. It's not really that important. Why don't you just give it a rest? This is Richard Dawkins' uh, approach. Well, if there was no literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity would never have materialized. We would not be here today. The disciples would have continued to run and hide in fear, from the Jewish leaders and from the Romans. And after such a public and brutal execution of their leader, they would never have dared to stand up in front of crowds of people in Jerusalem and declare so boldly that he was alive. Much less would they have stood so defiantly before the Jewish Sanhedrin and before various Roman authorities after being beaten and imprisoned with their own lives hanging in the balance, their lives being threatened, You've got to stop preaching about Jesus. You've got to stop talking about his resurrection. And they refused to stop. They said, we have to obey God rather than men. Keep in mind that most of them did die martyrs' deaths specifically for this claim 
that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's how they were after being convinced of Jesus' resurrection. This, there's something that happened that changed these cowering, fearful, fleeing men into men who were willing to stand in front of the crowds and stand in front of authorities and say, we will not back down on this message. Jesus is alive. Now, what's so significant about that? What would change these men to that degree that they're ready to just go to torturous deaths and will not back down on that message? capital letter B in the outline, we look at the immediate reactions of the disciples. This was a transitional moment for them. This is a real crisis point when they met Jesus here on this mountain in Galilee. I suspect this was one of those mountains they had hung out on before. They spent a lot of time in Galilee before, right? During the ministry of Christ, sat on mountainsides and would teach to them. You know, had the natural amphitheater setting when they're on a hillside so that everybody could see and hear Jesus talk and and so they've probably been to this place before. They've come back now, back to the, one of their, their uh, previous hangouts so that he can present himself to them alive and tell them what he wants them to know, the first important. So we see the immediate reactions of the disciples, a combination of worship and uncertainty in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Well, this isn't a skepticism, I don't think, so much, but a, a wavering uncertainty. You know, it's the kind that's, that, that James talks about when he says, let them ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's this uncertainty. Is this really, is this really for real? Well, I think we should maybe be a little bit forgiving because have you ever seen a ghost? That would be the first thought, right? Is this a ghost? We saw Jesus die. We saw him put in the tomb. We know that Romans are really thorough in their work of killing people. We saw it done. He was dead. Now here he stands before us. You can understand understand perhaps the pause. This might cause some of them, right? You've seen someone perhaps if you haven't seen for a very long time and they maybe have changed so much. Is is that really them? You see them in the shop or something like that, that person you haven't seen for 20 years. Is that really them? Uh, Years ago when my children were rather small, actually I thought of pulling up the picture. I didn't do it, but uh, it's a little bit embarrassing, I suppose. But but years ago, we were back in Kalamazoo, which by the way is where all three of my children were born. Kalamazoo, it's a real place. K-A-L-A-M-A-Zoo in Michigan. And uh, so they were all young. In fact, this picture is, is on the, the day of what I'm talking about. And it's a picture of me, you know, being on the horse, you know, on, on, on hands and knees. And I've got all three kids stacked one behind the other on my back. In this picture. But it was a, kind of a funny day because um, I'd, I'd been wearing, you know, a beard in some form or another, you know, pretty much ever since I was able to grow one. And... Um, and so I just, it was one of those weird flukes, one of those odd moments, you know, the evening before, I just kind of looked at myself in the mirror and I wonder what I look like without a beard. And I just went, you know, and shaved it all off. Beards and mustaches all gone completely. 
So the next morning, you know, the kids are down in there. They all shared this, this one kind of big room with bunk beds and stuff. And so they were down, and, and the, the, the door to this room, in this apartment we were in in Kalamazoo, um, the door to the room is straight at, straight at the end of this long hall. Uh, so you know, you've got the kitchen living room area down here, and then you kind of go past a couple of the things along the way, down this long, narrow hall. But then the door to their bedroom is just right in the middle. So the door is open. They're playing around in the room down there, and I just went down to check on them and say, say hi. And it was so funny to see all, all three of them. I had kind of forgotten about the significant change that had just taken place. You know, I was just going out to check on the kids. And, and all of a sudden, the kids stopped, and they all looked down the hall, and they're almost either worried or confused or they're like, who is this person coming down the hallway? And it was just staring and trying to, you know, figure this whole thing out. And when they realized it was me and the things had changed, it was really, it was really kind of funny. So I can understand the, that feeling of uncertainty that, that surely these disciples must have felt because Jesus is, is now resurrected and in his, his heavenly body. And I don't know how that made him look different, but, but we, just, we saw that on the road to Emmaus, he was able to obscure even his identity from people who knew him. I, I suspect Peter being one of them. So, so they doubted a little bit. Okay, let's be a little forgiving because uh, we haven't been in that, that situation ourselves. But now, this is what Jesus has to say to them. Post, post-trauma for the weekend, and now he's meeting this group of men for the first time. He's spoken, he's appeared to the women, he appeared to these two on the road to Emmaus, and, and now all the rest of the group are together for the first time and, and presenting himself to them. What does he have to say? Well, this is Roman numeral number two, the commission, verses 18 through 20. Capital letter A. We see the power, the authority, really, of Jesus, which is absolute as Lord of heaven and earth. This is the first thing that he has to say. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We read that passage sometimes, we just kind of read past it, you know. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, and go, and we move on. Do you get what what kind of a statement that is? All authority, all power, sovereignty over all heaven and all earth has been given to me. Wow. Who would dare say this? It's a declaration, I am now the boss over everything. That's the result of what he has done. It was what God the Father has has granted to to acknowledge the ministry of Christ that has been completed. Jesus' declaration of power is related to his position that's been given to him by God. The Greek word translated here, authority, can very well be translated power, as in Matthew 9, verses 6 through 8. Um, particularly it comes across this way in the New King James. They use the word, the word power. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive. Do you remember the context? Jesus, Jesus has healed a, a, a paralyzed man, 
His friends lowered him down through the, through the roof, the hole that they made in a roof because of a crowd. And the first thing that Jesus said to this man was, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is good at saying shocking things, I mean, unexpected things. This man comes to him for healing and he says, your sins are forgiven. And you remember, of course, the Pharisees are standing around the, the fringes of the, of the crowd saying, how dare he? Who can forgive sins except God himself? I mean, because God, Jesus wasn't just forgiving him for some personal offense, was he? I mean, I can, I can forgive someone who offends me, but I can't say, Tony, I forgive you for everything you've done bad in your life and everybody you've offended. I don't have the power to do that. Only God can do that. So the Pharisees were correct, in a way, when they said, only God can do this. And Jesus is essentially saying, exactly. But since you can't see the forgiveness that's taking place, since you can't see the spiritual reality that this man's sins are forgiven because I say so, let me give you a little bit of visual, physical proof. And so that's when he heals his body to demonstrate his power. So he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, he turns to him and says, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Now, everybody in the neighborhood knew this man's been paralyzed all his life. They've seen him on the side of the street begging. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw this, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power, in other words, such authority to a man. This is the kind of power, the kind of authority that we're talking about here in Matthew 28. Jesus is saying, all power, all authority has been given to me. Jesus had earned and had been granted by the Father the position of Lord and Master over all heaven and earth with a full restoration of all his power over the universe that he himself created, that Jesus created, as, a, as we can see in the following passages. Just, we'll just read through them quickly. Philippians 2. 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Remember the ensemble's number at the offertory today? Jesus, name above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So the physical things and the spiritual things, all created by Jesus. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, for his benefit, for his glory, for his pleasure. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, first one to be resurrected by God the Father in this fashion, that in everything he might be preeminent, as in first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on 
heaven, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see the significance of Jesus' sacrifice and the significance of the acceptance of the Father, the satisfaction that the Father, Father finds in Jesus' sacrifice that is all verified by and rewarded in the, in the resurrection, at which point he's not just raised from the dead, but he's raised back to that place of preeminence as God over everything. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, referring to those many, many, many years of prophecies of the Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. We have these same truths being affirmed over and over again, from one book to another in the Bible, right? Jesus made it all, and He's over it all. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The universe. I love science. I love space uh, you know, videos and docos and things like that. And to see the images you know, the, the, the Hubble telescope has, has captured and, and, and the various satellites and things that have been sent out deep, deep, deep into space. And when they get the signals the the images back and things like that the universe is so amazing and, and and there's a sense of scientists that we have barely begun to scratch the surface we have no idea how far it goes and what else is out there that we've never seen i'm amazed by space and it says here that jesus is the one who upholds the universe with his words just by declaring that things should be such, they are in this vast universe. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the position of Christ today. Hebrews 2, 8, second part of, of verse 8 and verse 9. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he, the Father, left nothing outside his, Jesus' control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The accomplishment of Jesus Christ as the Savior, the suffering Savior on the cross, achieved something that we can't begin to fathom, that we can't begin to understand. But this was significant when God raised him from the dead and said, now you are the one who I'm elevating above all, above everything, above everyone. That reality makes the following command from Jesus perfectly sensible. Hence the therefore that follows which connects his initial declaration to the following command. He starts by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore. So here's the, why is it important that he said that? That all power, all authority is mine. Therefore, this is what should result because of that. Capital letter B in this outline. We see the purpose of Christian mission here, which is to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
Now we need to note here, because this is something that's confused a little bit in English translation, something that doesn't come across quite, quite the right way. Go is not the command in this passage. It looks like it in English, right? Looks like the first thing he's saying is go. But in fact, in the Greek, in the grammar there, it's actually a passive participle. It's really um, in your going, while you're going, in the course of going. Okay? It assumes going, it assumes that Christians are going to be moving about. But the real command is make disciples. That's the imperative in this, in this passage. Grammatically, the way Jesus spoke it, the command is make disciples. It's the main imperative clause, it's the central command. Making disciples is the purpose or the mission of, of Christians in their going. Okay? So it's not something that you can brush aside, this great commission, you can say, well, I don't feel like God has led me to go to another country or another culture or something like that. So really, I guess this commission doesn't apply, apply to me exactly because, because I don't feel led to be a foreign missionary. So there you go. No, no, no. It's wherever you go, wherever you are as a Christian. The commission from Jesus Christ is make disciples. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he's achieved salvation. He has conquered sin and death and all of its consequences. He's been elevated by the Father. And people need to know that. Everywhere. So every Christian's commission is, wherever you go, however the Lord leads you, you need to be bringing people under the lordship and the tutelage of Jesus Christ. Make them disciples of Jesus Christ. Now he does say, make disciples of all nations. So, some of our going is going to have to be to different places. In fact, he makes that, that clear following. Now, this list of all nations, the, the people groups, socio-political, cultural, linguistic communities are all represented here. If you look at, at Revelation 7, I think I've got that. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, we see what the end result is supposed to be, right? This is what's going to happen someday. This is what we're going to find in heaven. John sees this vision of the future in heaven. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what's going to happen. People represented. Now, why do we have all these words? Nations, tribes, peoples, languages. We have geopolitical references in the nations and tribes. We have cultural groups in the peoples. And then we have linguistic groups in the, in the languages that are there. So really it covers all possible classifications of, of people. Just to make sure that no, no, nothing's lost anywhere. People representing from every part of the globe, from every culture, from every language group, is going to, they're all going to be before the throne in heaven someday, worshiping their Savior, Jesus Christ. We see Jesus trying to move the disciples that way. 
on that occasion when he was about to ascend. So 40 days later or so. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these are his final words to his disciples before he lifts off and returns to, to heaven in the flesh. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jerusalem is where it all started, right? Judea is the region in which Jerusalem exists. Samaria is the next region to the north. And then to the farthest reaches of the earth, you will be the people who go out and let people know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that I am the Savior. People can come to the Father only through me. The note this shows the absolute inclusiveness that is implied in Jesus' reference to all nations and his command when he says, in your going, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now in the outline, this is letter C, where we see the process of making disciples, which is baptizing and teaching. Verse 19, second part of verse 19, and into verse, first part of verse 20. Here we have the following two, these are also, also grammatically, participial clauses, they describe the activities that must be included in the disciple-making process. They fill out the make disciples command. In other words, what does the work of making disciples of Jesus look like? This is what it looks like. This is what you do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right Now, baptism, after the resurrection of Jesus, always assumes a prior decision of faith. So this is an implied command here. When you baptize them, it means you've led them to an understanding of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. This is always what we see in the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ. It's a, it is, assumes a prior decision of faith in who Jesus is, what he has accomplished for us by giving himself up as the perfect and ultimate substitutionary atoning sacrifice. We talked in the book of Levit Leviticus about the importance of substitutionary atonement, right? For all of our offenses against God. So baptism is the symbolic act of publicly identifying with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a pageant of faith. Paul uses this imagery in chapter, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So baptism does not produce new spiritual life. Rather, it dramatizes how the believer acquired new spiritual life by faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. It's a public testimony. So, so we are to baptize people, in other words, bring to the point of faith where they're ready to identify with the death, burial, and res resurrection of Jesus Christ publicly, and in the name that has, interestingly, the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to unpack here. I'll try to hurry. But this, this name is singular. But it's the singular name of three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity? How clearly it's implied there? The singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead. Now here's the second part. Baptizing leading them to faith, and clear declaration of faith, right? That's that. And then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
So the, the broad scope of this educational command means that systematic Bible study and theology are not just important, they're a requirement for all Christians. You get that? Some people like to minimize doctrine today. Uh, just give us a practical things that we can take from the Bible, deal with our everyday, whatever. Doctrine, understanding the, the truths about God and His work and salvation, these are the things that Jesus made His disciples understand, the fulfillment of, of prophecy in, his, in Himself and all the implications of that. He taught His disciples these things. So therefore, doctrine, theology, the study of God's Word is required, it's expected by Jesus Christ of all of His disciples. This is a pass-it-along kind of command that started with the apostles and continues to us. Them in these verses, teaching them, all that I've commanded you, them in these verses refers to new and subsequent generations of disciples of Christ. Those few disciples did not accomplish in their lifetime the work of making disciples of all nations, right? So it must have been continued to the disciples of the disciples. Therefore, we cannot excuse ourselves from the mission by suggesting that Jesus was only talking to the apostles. Paul was the first missionary to take the gospel to Gentiles, but, and he wasn't even present on this occasion. If, if it applied to Paul, it applies to us. Also, in the next statement, Jesus implied that this work was to continue until the end of this current age, and we would call this the church age. It began with the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit, which started in the beginning of Acts, and it will end at Christ's re promised return, which we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and elsewhere. So letter D, we have finally in his statement the promise of the presence of Christ, which is our source of power to achieve this commission. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't just say, look, you've got this big job to do. I'm dumping this on you. See you. I'm heading back to heaven. Good luck. Hope it goes well for you. He's saying, I'll, I'll be there with you. I'll be empowering you all the way to the very end. Jesus finished this commission with the comforting assurance that his constant presence will be with them. The presence of the one with all power. This closes the loop. Christ's power and presence are the bookends of the, of the Great Commission. All power, all authority has been given to me, and I'm going to be with you all the way, empowering you. So while we all have a part to play, we can take heart in the fact that Jesus has promised to go with us. He, with his unlimited power and authority. There we hear, here we have it. These main points here of the commission itself. The power and authority of Jesus, which is absolute, Lord of heaven and earth. The purpose of the, of the Christian commission, to make disciples of Jesus. By the way, he, he's commanding them to make disciples of himself, right? Teaching all that I have commanded you. So in other words, when we make disciples, we're not trying to create followers for ourselves. We need to get ourselves, we take the attitude of John the Baptist. I must decrease, he must increase. We were making disciples of Christ, we're not trying to make ourselves significant. Oh, look at all my followers. Look at all the people in my church. Look at all the people in my Bible study group. <laughs> Aren't I a great leader? <clears throat> Disciples of Jesus. Always pointing to Jesus. The process of making disciples, baptizing, teaching, leading them to Christ. Point of public identification 
with Christ, joining the, the family of God, the church, and teaching, which is a primary function of the local church. So people need to be joining local churches as they come to Christ, so that they can be taught. And finally, we have the promise of the presence of Christ, which is our source of power in all of this. So here's the final, final thoughts for application. Are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged his lordship over you? It all has to start there. If you have not come to that point, you need to acknowledge Jesus is the one who made forgiveness for all of your sins possible. He has made salvation possible by his sacrifice. It's been found acceptable by God the Father as evidenced through the resurrection. He is the only way. No other faith, no other religious path, no other effort of your own will succeed. There is one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you are a disciple of Christ, are you observing what he commanded to be passed on to you and for you to pass on to others? Are you making efforts to make more disciples of Christ? Are you also willing to have your going perhaps redirected to another country or another culture to contribute to the mission of bringing people to Christ from all nations? God may want you to do that. It may be for a short-term trip, it might be for a lifetime. It might be across the world, or it might be a different neighborhood where there's a different people group or language group or something like that. But are you embracing the commission to be part of that process? Thirdly, are you engaged in the process of discipleship itself? Are you encouraging the unbaptized believers in your sphere of influence, to follow Christ in obedience with public baptism, to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, if a person's a believer, they need to do that. Also, are you teaching or are you being taught and setting an example for others to be taught by being faithful to attend church and Bible studies? Now here I'm not trying to become legalistic and say every single thing that's offered, you should be there, you know, five times a week, be at church or Bible study. I'm not saying that. But are you being faithful to gather with believers when Scripture is being taught every Sunday? And do you take advantage of some other opportunity to gather with believers where you can fellowship and grow and dig in a little bit deeper in Bible study? We should all be doing this. And if you are someone who's come to Christ and has never really been taught clearly the basics of the understanding of, 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 of the Bible message and, and of the Christian life, then you should, you should find somebody, a mature believer, and spend some time with them and do a bit of a study with them that covers the basics of discipleship, of what it is to follow Christ. And you should be willing to engage and help somebody with that process if you understand these things already, if you're a more mature believer. Lastly, when you feel nervous or intimidated in your witness, will you remember Christ's promise and trust the promise of the power of his presence? If that, you need to say that. Try it. Trust the promise of the power of his presence. All together. Trust the promise of the power of his presence. Jesus said, I will be with you. I have all authority. It's all been given to me. I will be with you to the end of the age. So the power, the promise, the power of his presence will help us to share the gospel with others. And we can all lean into that. If we all do these things, exciting things could begin to happen. 
You know, it's wonderful to see the amazing work that God has done in Argentina through this group of believers who've gotten together and rolled up their sleeves and say, we're going to do what it takes to create a location where, where people know that the Bible is taught and we're going to go out and find the people in the neighborhood and try to bring them in and we're going to witness to them on an individual level. It's not just about bringing people to church, right? It's about witnessing to them, sharing the gospel with people one-on-one. I like Brother Horacio, is that his name? Is that? Talking to the police officer, right? So this is what we need to do. And if we do this, things might happen that we could have never anticipated. Exciting things could happen. Now, he has all power over heaven and earth. He may simply be waiting for us to get more serious about following his instructions. So let's pray for the motivation and the power to begin in a new way. However God wants you to do that, if you are open, if you're prepared, if you're prayerful, he'll give you the opportunities. They will arise. It may not be every day. But if you're aware, if you're watching, there's, there's going to be that conversation. You're going to see that moment. Oh, God wants me to say something to this person. Then do it. See where he'll take it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you have made your purpose and your, and your plan and your will and your power available to us uh, so clearly. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for going before us and facing, facing death and, and all, of its, all of its curse for us because of our guilt, because of our sin. We thank you for achieving this satisfactory atonement for us and, and making salvation so available to us and reconciliation and, and the certainty of heaven before us. And so I pray that you would help us to, to contemplate very seriously the fact that you are sovereign Lord of all and that you have adopted us into your family and that you have given us a, a responsibility to bring others to the knowledge of who you are and what you have done for them, that they might become your disciples, your children as well. So help us each one to embrace in whatever way you have planned for us as individuals, in whatever way you want to use the talents, the skills, the interests that you have granted each one of us as individuals, help us to be ready to yield these things to your service, to be used by you in fulfillment of this great commission. We pray these things. Your name, Jesus. Amen.